Welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and we are recording from the AACR Pancreatic Cancer Meeting here in Boston. I've got a very special guest, someone I've known for a couple years. We met back, I think, when AACR was down in Florida on the back end of the World Pancreatic Cancer. Uh, I think that was the second year, or maybe the third year of the World Pancreatic Cancer Summit, which is crazy, because now I think we're in our sixth year of it. Right. But good friend of Project Purple, Anurban Mitra from MD Anderson Cancer Center here in Boston. We made it, you made it. I made it, I made it, and Antonio Brown made it. So yes. we both made it to Boston at the same time. The ABs, as you, and we're gonna talk about this. You are, and I did some research. Okay. You have over 10,000 Twitter followers. That is correct. Now, so, it's not nowhere near how much Justin Bieber has, but no. I, I think I'm, I'm giving him. In the space though, in the pancreatic cancer space, other than PanCan, you are number two. That's incredible. I had no idea about that. Thank now you for you sharing this. Now you know. See, I, I did my research. I did my research. So, and last night you had a funny tweet. This will air in a couple of weeks, but Antonio Brown yesterday, the, the, the mayhem of the NFL, this first going into this first weekend and Antonio Brown gets released at like 12 o'clock from the Los Angeles uh, or Oakland Raiders at four o'clock, he can sign with any team, and it's announced at like 4.30, he signed with the Patriots. I think as he was posting, he's getting on a plane, you also posted to Twitter that AB is also coming to Boston, but the real AB, which, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think you actually, you should, you should trademark that. That's awesome, but uh, for our listeners at home, hopefully they, they when they hear that, that'll, that'll bring a chuckle to everyone. But Anderbon, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, Dino. For our listeners at home, and I know before we started recording here, we talked a little bit about the vastness of our audience and the guests we've had. This is your opportunity to give everyone at home who doesn't know who Anurban is. Everyone should know, because this is a household name in the pancreatic cancer space, particularly the research side and what you guys are doing at MD Anderson. But share with our audience as much or as little as you want of your background. Sure. So um, I um, moved to the United States from, uh, from India, where I did my medical school, and then I um, did my pathology residency in Dallas, um, and then I went to Johns Hopkins, um, basically to learn about pancreatic cancer and do pancreatic cancer research. This was in 2001. And I trained with uh, really one of the legends in this field, a gentleman called Ralph Ruban, and um, many of his other colleagues who've done amazing things in, in science and in pancreatic cancer in particular. Um, and I stayed on at Johns Hopkins for about 13 years. I became a professor there. And then in 2013, I got a phone call uh, from the then president of MD Anderson um, asking me if I was interested in heading up a pancreatic cancer research center um, at MD Anderson that had just been established and uh, to do really um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, meaningful transformational, tra uh, translational research, um, really in, in, in bringing the advances that we are seeing in the lab to the clinic for our patients. And it was uh, an incredible opportunity. I mean, MD Anderson is the number one cancer center um, in the country, probably on the planet. And um, so I, I jumped at it, and uh, it's been six years that I moved to MD Anderson and have the great fortune and honor of, of leading their pancreatic cancer moonshot program. So as some of you might know, um, MD Anderson was the first to launch a moonshot against uh, multiple cancers. And so I co-lead the pancreatic cancer moonshot there. I'm the director of their uh, pancreatic cancer research center, work with um, uh, many incredibly talented individuals, uh, including some that had um, really outstanding support from Dino and Project Purple um, early on in their careers. In fact, I was I was uh, just uh, chatting with Dino before the podcast got started. That you know, one gentleman in particular. I mean, he was just fresh out of his fellowship as a new faculty, and uh, you know, he's somebody who many funding agencies including the NIH may necessarily not may not necessarily have invested in it at that time in their career but but Dino 
uh, Dino took a chance on him, and and that investment that Dino made, that 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 initial grant that he made, um, uh, you know, my colleague, he, he really ran with it, and now he is, uh, you know, one of the rising stars, and he gets invited to national talks, and I think it's it's just a testament to the kinds of things that. Um, you know, Project Purple has done in investing in in junior faculty. So, so for me, it's been a real uh, wonderful journey for the last six years to be working with um, and and championing uh, pancreatic cancer research at MD Anderson um, with really exceptional colleagues. Well, I, I've got a for full disclosure when we invested in Eugene Eugene Coy, who's been on the podcast as well, the gentleman you were just referencing. Yes. You and I had that conversation, I think, shortly after meeting for the first time. And I said, you know, we're interested in maybe investing at MD Anderson. What do you have going on? And you said, you know what, I've got a guy for you. Yes. So the humility that you had, and I mean, you could have said, hey, yeah, give me the money. Yes. You know, and I'll find a project within my lab. But you said, no, I've got a guy, perfect. He's a rising star, and it's worked out amazing. Well, I mean, I think to me, uh, it's a very simple defining philosophy, and it's how I was personally raised, quote-unquote raised, in my academic life by my mentors, and that includes, in particular, Ralph Ruban at Johns Hopkins, which is uh, paying it forward and being incredibly generous with your mentorship, with your time, um, and with the opportunities that you give to your mentees. And so for me, whenever I get an opportunity like this, when someone like uh, Dino comes to me and says, hey, we would like to make an investment in MD Anderson, uh, it's never give it to me. It is typically a junior faculty or someone who's a rising star who I think is, is the future. I mean, to me, that is that is the way we are going to build the next generation of pancreatic cancer researchers and, and clinicians. We have to invest in the future because these are the folks who are going to cure this disease. It's powerful stuff. I want to take a step back, though. Why pancreatic cancer? What was it in Ralph? Was there something, was it sure. about Ralph? Was there something in the lab? Was there a personal experience? And I, I always ask every researcher Absolutely. that question. No, that's a very fair question to ask. And, you know, uh, fortunately, I don't have any personal experience with this disease. Um, it's not something I wish on anyone. Um, but um, when I was at in Dallas in the final year of my training, I was looking for jobs and I actually had an offer to go to Chicago and be a faculty in pathology. Um, and then um, I there was a, a guest lecture in Dallas in my institution by somebody called Ralph Ruban, who was coming in from Johns Hopkins and he was gonna talk about pancreatic cancer. And I remember it was, it's called the Montgomery Lecture. It's a name lecture once a year and you know the person who comes is given a plaque and, and it's, it's held in an auditorium, so it was wonderful. And Ralph spoke about pancreatic cancer, and this was in the year 2000. And um, if you think that we have not made much progress, imagine 20 years ago. Um, with that said, we have made a lot of progress, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. But but anyway, this was in the year 2000. And um, I don't know how many of your listeners have ever had uh, what I would call an epiphany, that moment which is completely transformational for the career, for the arc of your life. I mean, sometimes it's because you meet someone. Um, sometimes in my case, as it was in my case, it's because I heard this amazing lecture that caused me to really step back for a second and say, maybe instead of this faculty position in Chicago, I can go and be a trainee for a couple more years and work with this this extraordinary individual uh, and make a difference in this disease that is so terrible that's almost crying out for help. Um, and so, so I actually turned down my offer to go to Chicago and I wrote to Ralph and I said, "Do you, do you, would you be interested in in me coming there as a fellow?" Uh, and so so that worked out. I went there, I trained one year as a diagnostic fellow in pathology, and then I worked in the lab. So time out here for a second, I'm jumping here. So you had the job offer from Chicago. Yes. You didn't have a job offer from Ralph. No, no, it was just a fellowship. It was just like, hey, let me, I wanna yeah, come to your lab, I'm so inspired. Yeah, I mean, I was blown away by that lecture. I will never forget it. Were you it. married at the time? Uh, yes. What did your wife say to you? 
<laughs> well, I mean, it was a surprise, but uh, you know, it is John Hopkins. She's, Hopkins. She's yeah, very, yeah, supportive. very supportive. She's had. I mean, she has been an extraordinary partner in this journey, and right now she's at home with the kids for the next six days as I'm, you know, on the road for these conferences, and she works full time. And you know, I, I, again what I do would not be possible without the support at home. There's no question. So she was very supportive. And um, and so there I was, uh, completely unknown journey to Baltimore, not knowing, you know, turning down a faculty offer is yeah. not an easy thing to do. No. People people wait for those offers yeah. and they're delighted when they get it. And I was very happy and nothing, nothing against Chicago. It's just that I felt like something you tells you that this is the direction that's calling you and you should followed that call and I'm so glad I did. Are you spiritual? Very uh, spirituality? Well, I mean, I have to say that there are moments in our lives and especially as you work in such a challenging field that you feel like um, there's something unconscious guiding you and telling you which direction on the fork to take. So, yeah. Well, we're glad you took that fork. I am, to I, the am right. I am glad too, my friend. To get to I'm Johns very Hopkins. Glad. I'm very glad. So at Hopkins, you worked in Ralph's lab, and that was back early on. I mean, so not to fast forward completely, but it's like what you just said, like back in 2000. It was crazy. So I, I, I moved to Hopkins in 2001. And um, it's it's interesting, um, you know. Since you mentioned that you are doing this podcast from um, from the ASCR meeting, we have 530 people in this room That's today. Amazing. And I will tell you that if you told me in 2001 that there would be an annual meeting in pancreatic cancer research with 500 plus people in a room, I would laugh at you. Uh, we would literally be the last session of a big meeting with 30 people in a room on pancreatic cancer. In fact, the first iteration of this kind of a meeting was 2004 um, when um, at UCSF, Dr. Margaret Temporo, yeah. she, she got together with the Lust Garden Foundation and with the ACR and they said, let's hold a meeting in pancreas cancer. And, and um, it was like 50 people in a room. And that was 2004 the mouse model for pancreatic cancer had just been built. We were barely starting to understand what's going on in the DNA of pancreas cancer. And um, it was it was it was amazing. It has been amazing to see from two thousand and four, fifteen years later, where we are today and 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 not just in terms of the people, but the science, where the research has gone, where the clinical impact is. It's just, it's been transformational. Has there been a time, and, and I'm, I'm gonna mention, uh, uh, I remember when you spoke at the WPC meeting, you put up a, a diagram and it was a pie chart and you were like, hey, in 2000 we knew this and it was like six pieces. Yeah. Fast forward to today and there was like 28 pieces. Right. So has there ever been a time in this and since you've been there since the very beginning, probably one of the pioneers, that have really in the last 20 years that you just kind of scratch your head and go, oh my God, I mean, this is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in 2008 was when we published the first, you know, pancreatic cancer genome, the mm-hmm. DNA sequence of pancreatic cancers. And that project took, I don't know, like two dozen people, $5 million. I don't even know how much money it took. And now, my grad student does that overnight. She literally, she's here. She literally puts, you know, the stuff in a machine and next morning the data is ready. So technology has really moved by leaps and bounds. As a result of it, you know, we are able to interrogate and get information at such a greater speed than we ever could have envisioned. Not that long ago. I mean, 15 years there's a lot of stuff that's still the same 15 years later, but, um, you know, I mean, you still fly Boeing 737s, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, when you look at just the pace of science and, and gleaning information on the sort of the genetic highway, if you so will, it's amazing how quickly that has transformed. So if we talk about the progress here, what are some of the things that you see now that really excite you? Okay, so I think I think well, 
I could pretty much take the program of this meeting and go talk by talk okay. if 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 you want me to do that. But let's let's hit on some of the high points. So first of all, I think um, in terms of treatment, we do have better treatments than we had in 2000. I mean, in 2000, we just had this one drug, gemcitabine, which was okay but didn't do a lot. Um, we now have two first-line regimens, um, you know, for Firinox and gemcitabine and Braxane. And we still need to understand better why one works in some people and the other in the others. But, but at least we have two good regimens to work with. And then, as you probably heard at this meeting, um, there are really exciting combinations coming down the pipeline, including combinations in immunotherapy, which you know, has always been for pancreatic cancer the toughest nut to crack. Um, you know, this is this is a uh, this is a modality immunotherapy that actually, you know, it it won the Nobel Prize last year for Dr. Jim Allison, who's at MD Anderson. He discovered many of the key tenets of immunotherapy, made the first drug, um, and it's worked wonders in melanoma, lung cancer, bladder cancer, head and neck. Um, but somehow we could never get it to work in pancreas. And now finally, as you heard at this meeting, we are starting to get it, get signals that it is working. It's working not by itself. You're having to make these smart combinations. So, but, but it was a joy to see some of the data that's coming out showing that, yes, if you combine in the right uh, regimens and give it in the right way to the right patients, you can actually get amazing data. So to me, um, understanding what will work in terms of appropriate combinations of treatments, including immunotherapy, something that was really unthinkable a few years ago, is one big area. The second thing has been um, um, in the context of understanding what the risk factors are for pancreatic cancer and and trying to diminish those risk factors in, in terms of intercepting pancreatic cancer from happening. Um, and I talked a little bit about that in my session, um, which is, you know, now we know who some of the highest risk groups are, including patients who have individuals, I should say, they're not patients. In fact, our hope is never to make them patients. Individuals who have um, abnormalities in their in their DNA that they're born with, what we call germline abnormalities. Um, and, and that's a it's a high risk group, and I know that that um, Project Purple, for example, has invested heavily in in coming up with the national consortium for studying how these high risk individuals behave and what can be done to stem the tide of cancer progression in them. What has really helped, and this is a perfect marriage of technology and 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 just the basic sciences, um, doing these uh, these tests to find out if somebody's ca carrying one of these abnormal DNA in their body used to take thousands of dollars to do. Now you can do it for 250 bucks, which is like four people going out to eat in New York, probably even more. It's a week of Starbucks. Yeah, exactly. For 250 bucks, you'll get information on 30 genes, whether you carry a mutation or whether your sibling or your son or daughter carries that mutation, you can get it for 50 bucks, check a box on the screen and that's it. It's amazing, it's like Amazon, right? Yeah. And and so and so, our in, an increase in the knowledge of the risk factors, married to the technology that has made testing for those risk factors cheaper, has been the perfect storm in a good way. And so, understanding the risk factors for pancreatic cancer, like high-risk patients, pancreatic cysts, these are these fluid-filled sacs in the pancreas that could be a forerunner for pancreatic cancer and then understanding the link between pancreatic cancer and diabetes, that some patients who present with diabetes, a small minority, but nonetheless have an underlying pancreatic cancer has been, again, an enormous advance in our understanding. So, so, so better treatments, a better understanding of the risk factors for pancreatic cancer that we did not know 10, 15 years ago. And then the critical mass, I mean, there is no question, and we have seen this with breast cancer, with prostate cancer, with colon cancer. The way you make progress in a field is when there is a critical mass of people, researchers, scientists, doctors, who come together and want to work in that area. If you have 10 people working in an area, that's great compared to zero, but that's still not going to make the 
meaningful, significant impact as compared to, say, 500 people in a room who are all working against one disease. And, and that growth in the critical mass, bringing the best and the brightest individuals, many of whom you heard of the last two days talk, um, again, uh, that to me has been a major advance. And, and, and that's it, the effects are showing. The effects are showing some of these treatment regimens that we are now seeing in the clinic. They came out of the labs of these fantastic people that are now working in pancreatic cancer. I, you know, coming here, this here in Boston for the last two years, it blows my mind how many young researchers, scientists, clinicians, and how everyone talks. And, you know, you you were talking for quite a bit after the the last segment. And that idea of working together, as you said, is really critical. Yeah. One of the things, though, that I I wanted to bring up, and I don't know if you see this as a challenge, and I I did want to ask what you think the biggest challenge is right now, which I think I know part of the answer. But do you think the the population size of this disease, because if we look at it, we compare it to breast cancer. My mom's a two-time breast cancer survivor, so I know this very well. You know, it's a 250,000-person disease that it affects yearly. Pancreatic cancer is 52, 53,000, right? So do you think that's a part of the challenge with the disease is just we don't have the sheer mass of some of these other diseases that they have, you know, we're five to one, you know, breast cancer is a five to one disease when you compare it to pancreatic cancer. I mean, honestly, I, the short answer is no. Um, and the long answer to that is is that um, if you think that pancreatic cancer is is not that common and that's what's preventing our progress, then we should really take a page out of the book of pediatric leukemias, which is 10,000 patients a year. These mm-hmm. these kids are, fortunately, only 10,000 kids get this disease. Um, but look what leukemia has done. They basically got into a room and said, we're all going to work together because one of us can't make this happen. Um, we're going to form a cooperative group, and every trial is going to go through this cooperative group. We're all gonna take joint credit. No one's gonna run with the credit. And look what they did. I mean, they have survival rates of 95% now. And to me, leukemia, and and for that matter, other rare tumors, um, which have far fewer numbers in pancreas, are actually examples of what a field like pancreas needs to do. And if there's anything that I hope this, this conference conveyed, is that that is happening. I think talk after talk, you heard investigators speak about the collaborations they have, many of them multi-institutional. It's not that you're just working with the person next door to your office. You're reaching across the country and you're working with individuals and you have to do that because, because you're right. The, the numbers game is against us. So the way that we make progress is to make lemonade out of that lime, That's which right. is five institutions bring each of their 50 patients or samples, and now you have 250. 10 institutions come together, now you have 500. And that's how you're gonna run a trial. That's how you're gonna do a biomarker, uh, a blood test, or an imaging study. That's the only way to do it. And it took time for people to recognize that. But I think, I think um, that has been at the center of the motivation increasingly. And I think, again, a great example is the Proceed study that you guys are doing. I mean, you know, I think there are 20 plus centers and. 29 and now. 29 think, or something. Yeah. I, it was Diane some ridiculous, today. Some ridiculous was number. And then I think some they ridiculous added four number. More. And yeah. I think, uh, again, how are you going to beat pancreas cancer? By working together. End of story. And so I. I if somebody tells me the numbers excuse, I'll say you gotta you gotta go back to the drawing board. Yeah. That that is not an excuse to me. But resources are a genuine problem, and I think I think I'm I'm probably beating a dead horse a little bit. But the the NIH funding is is perilous. We you know when I was um, when I was a fellow, I had just started at MD, at uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, when somebody like me wrote a grant to the National Institutes of Health, you had a one in three shot at getting funded. One in three. Today, that is one in 16 or one in 15, something like that. And, and, so, and so that 
that has really impacted. I mean, it's a little bit better for junior faculty because I think they give them a little bit of a pass, but still, it's, even if it's one in 10, um, it's, it's, it's not a motivation to be doing these grants, writing these grants, or doing academic research. So a lot of people leave and go, go into the private sector, private sector and, and they just you know see patients, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need these good minds in the field to make progress. Um, and, so, and so the NIH funding situation has been an issue. Um, and that's why foundations are so critical. Philanthropy is become more than just a top off. It has become the sustenance in many cases. Um, you know, used to be the cherry on top of a cake. Now it is the cake because there is no cake yeah, sometimes is no cake. from yeah. the from the federal government. And you know, I mean, and honestly, as much as we've seen, you know, everybody say the right things, when it actually comes to the appropriations, the numbers are not bad good if you balance well, it. Well, if you look at the, the overall budget, well, it's usually around 2% of the overall budget exactly that gets right. into pancreatic cancer, which That's is exactly now going right. to become the number two killer. In a lot of states, it's already number two. That's exactly right. I know in Connecticut and we're here in Boston and Massachusetts, it's actually the number two killer of all major cancers already uh, ahead of the national average. But yeah, the disparity in the numbers is astounding. It's stunning. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. And, and I have to say, maybe some of that is the numbers game in the sense that there are a lot many people, a lot more people in in the halls of Congress that have experienced or know someone with breast or prostate cancer, so mm -hmm. they feel like this is something that they have a personal connection to. But in in the in the context of pancreas, uh, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, I guess, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm I think we should all consider it fortunate that there's not that many cases, but but in the context of, of, of uh, in the halls of Congress, people realizing just how serious it is yeah. and that they need to invest in this. In a very clear example of this is the Department of Defense. There is a breast cancer program, a prostate cancer program, mm -hmm. a dedicated program that has money just for that cancer. There is nothing like that for pancreas. We are kind of put together with 11 other things, including <laughs> worm infection and asthma. And, you know, I mean, come on. The second most common cause of cancer at some point soon deserves to have its own track in the Department of Defense. Isn't that something that should happen? I think it should happen. And we, you know, we have this aid program and we've helped people from the military. Yeah. And it's astonishing. And I mean, the stories you hear about, you know, whether it's environmental and, right. you know, again, there's been a lot of talk here at the meeting over the last two days about you know, triggers, right. you know, and ge genetics, you right. know, is a big topic today and, and how things happen and why things happen and, um, you know, the environment and how those things play out. But yeah, it's, it's astonishing to me that the defense has not done more. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to me actually. So, um, but, but this is where I think the role of foundations like yours is, is paramount. I mean, again, when, when Eugene, when Eugene, um, was funded by by Project Purple. I mean, he had no NIH grant at that point. Um, but foundations can take a chance, often on word of mouth. And I will never forget that you took me on my word of mouth. You know, you could have said, <laughs> "You're uh, pretty trustworthy guy." <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, again, I, I'm very grateful for that because I said, "Well, who's this young fella? I've never heard of him, and he doesn't have any grants." And you know, but this is what foundations do. They 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 take a chance based on potential. Yeah. And the way NIH funds is, you have to have already demonstrated, demonstrated yes. and then they will fund you. It could have a potential, but. So just to talk about that, because I've heard this from other researchers yes. in the field, do you think the NIH system is broken? Well, we know it's broken in terms of how it's funded, right? Because there's just, it, it's underfunded, let's say. Yeah. But do you think that because I know with the way that, like, if we wanted to do something new or something that hasn't been tried before, NIH really isn't the place to go to shop. It at. is not, and I think some of that is not NIH's fault. It's it's the peer review system. It's what we call the study section, where you have you know thirty people in a room who get together for a couple of days and look at all the proposals, the grants, as we mm -hmm. say, we that have been submitted from around the country, and they find you know the few to fund. The problem here is. Um, when you have a limited pool of money, um, which is getting smaller, 
um, when you have to make decisions, then you start making strategic decisions where you say, well, this is low risk, but it'll get something versus this is high, high risk, risk. And should we really be spending money on this while it should be the other way around? High risk, high reward should be our driving principle in yeah. a disease like pancreas, Absolutely. for sure. So, so I think, I think again, this comes back to the pool of money that is made available. If you had the one in three shot I was talking about, then you could write out of the box proposals thinking, well, if this one doesn't get funded, my other one would get funded. Yeah. Now, knowing that your shot is one in 10, you you have to write something that you have you know has a sure short chance of getting funded, which means you kind of dial back your high risk stuff and put sure short things, and and so I think I think this is where this is where you know um, some of the out of the box ideas have to be also funded out of the box. box yeah. So do you think? I mean, you and I'm maybe just reiterating what you just said in my own thoughts here. If the funding mechanism was different, if the if it was that more we'd see more advances quicker. Yeah, yeah, I I, I absolutely think so. I mean, because number one, it would um, bring ideas that uh, could be transformational uh, into the clinic faster. Number two, it would liberate people. There are folks who are actively. St- like sort of suppressing their out of the box ideas, ideas thinking don't, yeah. don't, don't do this because yeah. it's it's not going to get funded. Submit the one that you know is going to get funded, yeah. you know? And so it would also allow people to take chances. And 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 so so yes, 100%. I, I think if there was a dedicated mechanism where you could say, just write the craziest idea you want as long as you can justify that this, if it works, this is gonna work. transform the care of pancreatic cancer, people would take that shot. But I, I, there is no mechanism like that, that's the problem. Fascinating. It, it's the reality. <laughs> it's the reality, but it's super fascinating. So what folks do, what folks do is they write the grants, they get the grants, and then they do the stuff that they really wanna do. Correct, So correct. <laughs> well, and I know that's like from when, when our involvement, when we got involved with a couple of centers, yeah. I was always told early on, like the NIH grant, you know, is the, the, the safe bet, right? Yeah. And then these grants from private foundations become kind of either at the time was like a bridge gap. Right. Or those outside the box ideas that wouldn't necessarily fly at the NIH, but I think they have some merit, and you know we can take a calculated risk, and if it pays off, it yeah. pays off big. Well, now, so now Eugene has funding, and you know he's getting invited to all these lectures. But when you funded him, it was just a, it was not even a product; it was just an idea, <laughs> idea. of something that you could do. I mean. You know, he just said, well, maybe we can do this using these CT scans. And I said, well, we'll see. Um, and and so and so that's the kind of mechanism where you say, I have this. I mean, it's interesting. If you look at how drug development works in, in, in private, I mean, yeah. oftentimes it's, it's just an idea, by the way. And they go out and they say, listen, I have this amazing idea. And and then they raise venture for it a billion dollars with a billion dollars just on an idea just on an idea but they have no clue and, whether and it I, I hear some of these numbers sometimes for you know one drug that's not even a drug yet and I think boy it would be amazing if some of that money like venture money could come into, come into academia the, yeah. instead of these guys having to you know write fifteen page grants and and struggle to get funding and rewrite and resubmit that in ten different places. Won't it be amazing if there was like a VC type system in academia, you know, or even like bridge loans or something, yeah. you know, like those micro loans or some exactly. sal- somehow, exactly. you know, and, and I know with pharma from my previous life, just dealing with some uh, private clients when sure. I was in the insurance business that, you know, that, that typically what would happen, you know, I yes. give them these like micro loans and then right. if the drug sells and they, that VC sells right. out at the height and you know, they right. had little investment, they had a lot of risk, but yeah, it's fascinating that that model hasn't come into play yet. No, it has not. And it should. I mean, I think some of it, it hasn't come into place because academia is still thought of as sort of like, you know, the, the 
pristine, you're doing this for the sake of hypothesis-driven research. A lot of people were doing it. Not for the money. Not for the money. Yeah. And and honestly, I don't think people would do it for the money. People would be, people would be to delighted get more to, money do it, to do it. To, yeah. for the money for the research. For the research, Not exactly. for their monetary gain. Nobody would be doing this for their personal monetary <laughs> yeah. gain. But if you could tell people that, okay, if you, here's a loan we're giving you. If you show us results with this loan, we'll give you, we'll give you a bigger loan. Yeah. I guarantee you that there will be immediate results on that. So, I like that idea. Now my head's spinning. <laughs> I got I got two more questions. Sure. Three more questions. Sure. And this is a hard one. And I know, remember going back to what I said before with the the pie chart. Do you still think we don't understand pancreatic cancer enough or well enough? Yeah, there are a lot of mysteries we still don't understand. We don't understand. Um, we understand a lot about the tumor cells themselves, but there's a lot of the surrounding of the tumor cells. The microenvironment. That, that what we call the microenvironment. And and I don't know if folks like Tony Hollingsworth have been on the podcast, but, you know, from Nebraska, uh, you know, the, these are experts in the tumor microenvironment, and, and they are studying. They're studying it every day. Um, but but there's a lot we don't understand still in terms of, for example, I think we alluded to that in the beginning of this podcast, why immunotherapy doesn't work. You know, you can, or if you infuse these T cells, these, these um, you know, army of cells that should attack and kill the tumors, they often work in many other cancer types. Why do these cells go to the cancer, through the pancreatic cancer, and they just stop there? Stop, yeah. They just stop there. They just, you can s literally see them and they are sitting there and doing nothing, and you're thinking, come on, go and kill the tumor cell yeah. that is right ahead of you. And we had some of those talks to, in this in this symposium. And, you know, I mean, so I think there's a lot we don't understand, but at the same time, if you look at where we have come from, We've we learned. know so much more. It's just astounding when you think of where we have come from. What is your greatest moment in your professional career that you've had? <laughs> <laughs> That's very hard. I mean, you know, I've had, I've been very lucky to have had some really great successes. I mean, to me, honestly, I think um, getting tenure at Johns Hopkins was was a big deal for me. My my dad was alive at that time, and he was he was very proud. He's a prof he was a professor. So was my mom. So is, I mean, she's retired now. She's alive, but they were both professors when I was growing up. My and my both of them had labs and grad students, and so I grew up with you know academics postdocs and grad students in my in in my house and thesis lying everywhere and papers being written that was the environment i grew up in and um so um and and still ended up being on the same track sometimes i wonder what did i do so um but i have to say getting tenure at johns hopkins was for me a very proud moment because it meant a reaffirmation that you know as an immigrant especially that you know that this country really you know you can make things come true if you work hard so awesome Twitter <laughs> let's talk about Twitter we're gonna shift gears a little bit and you're laughing I know we were talking so Anirvan's got over 10,000 he's got the second largest from my understanding of of anyone in the pancreatic cancer space other than pancan how did you get into Twitter so I, I actually Because you were like an innovator I think you were like one of the first in the yeah, like I, scientific I, community I signed up for Twitter 2008, I think, when, you know, it was still relatively early days. And I, 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 I realized that it's an amazing and free medium to disseminate knowledge. So, you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet something funny or, or non-work related, but 95, 97% of my tweets, and sometimes they can be very boring to someone who's not in the field, are all related to science, pancreatic cancer in particular, um, and, um, and um, you know, again, it's, it's interesting. I can't tell you how many people have told me that they use my Twitter feed as a, as a CME, as a continuing medical education thing. They just go on and say, okay, what are the papers they need to read? The good news for that is it has made me read a lot more. I read the papers, I distill the message, and then I get it out there for others to read. I put a little picture of the paper that's I think is the most yeah. important one. Um, and so, so you know, again, I got into it not, honestly, not to build followers. I mean, I'm not, I'm like, you know, there are people who get into it to build followers. I got into it to disseminate knowledge because I, and I, I, I firmly believe that 
scientists um, have an important role to play. I don't know if you've seen these, um, you know, um, these surveys that have been done looking at, um, you know, who does the public trust? And at least even today, with so much mistrust in so many institutions, people still trust scientists a lot. Um, and um, at the same time, there is a lot of uh, hype and 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 um, just you know misinformation that the internet has unfortunately perpetuated fake news. fake news exactly. And so, as scientists, we have a responsibility of one disseminating proper information that is pertinent to whatever area of specialization we have, and we also have. I feel a responsibility of 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 you know um, making sure we shoot down any misinformation, whether it's about vaccines or it's about you know some weird stuff for cancer that is not true, uh, and saying this is wrong because because these these kind of messages can get very quickly amplified. The misinformation I'm talking about can get amplified, and before you know it, you know people are acting on it. And I think it's very important that scientists play an active role in 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 not only spreading good information but dampening bad information. So that was my goal of getting on Twitter, which is to be um, you know somewhat of a source of good information and whenever possible say, look, this is not correct. This mm -hmm. is just hype. Um, I mean. I'm still sometimes shocked that 10,000 people follow me. What, what, what are they seeing in my Twitter feed? I mean, well, you're doing something right. And for the audience to say, home, you do this yourself. And I know we've talked about this. You don't have like there an is assistant. I, this, this is, is me. This is you. This is me. This There's is no me. Robo no robo This is me. I don't use any hoot suit or anything. Yeah. This is me at MD Anderson walking between buildings or a sandwich well, in my hand. that was my next question. Sandwich in my hand, you know, I'm literally like running or whatever between meetings and so quickly what's the big paper of the day, yeah. um, you know, in the morning when I'm sort of, you know, having my coffee, what, what, what came out and, you know, sometimes the European papers come out by that time, so yeah, what's morning, going on yeah. in Nature, which is a European publication, so what's going on there. Um, and you get it out, and so you know you do it. It doesn't take that much time, honestly. No. I think I think the time commitment is is overblown. It doesn't take that much time. It it helps me, as I said, stay grounded as to what's going on in the field. And and again, to me, it's a public service. I, I want I want not just the scientific community. I want our patients, our advocates, to be engaged. If they think there's nothing going on in the field, they're going to lose interest. Yeah. And they need to feel like, listen, there is a vibrant, active movement going on in this area, and we are making progress. And part of Twitter is to do that. Well, it's helping raise the awareness, and I Absolutely. appreciate everything you've done. And I, I always jokingly kid all of <laughs> our colleagues that we work with, like, hey, you got to step up your Twitter game because AB is like making you look silly. Well, like, Diane did, you know. Well, Diane did. So, so yeah. Madam Surgeon, by the way, that handle is me. That's I created your... that handle. I sat <laughs> with her across the table and she's like, Arban, what is Twitter? I need to open a Twitter. <laughs> so I said, Twitter? Diane, give me a phone. I literally created opened Madam, Madam Surgeon and I said, it's got to be Madam Surgeon because you are a surgeon. Correct. And, and you want no one not to treat you with respect. So you're gonna be Madam Surgeon, the one and only. And and now you know, she's she's gotten pretty good at but it. Twitter's a buzz now. It's it's fascinating. I was a, we were on one of the pink chats that yeah. Let's Win did, and it just the amount of like researchers now, and even coming here. Yeah. You know, I think everyone who spoke for the most part. I know a lot of the cancer centers yeah. are naturally on Twitter, but a lot of the the investigators and the oncologies. Well, the are, editors of the journals yeah. they're all on Twitter, and they're yeah. following what's going on. So you know, a lot of the editors who are actually at this meeting of these big journals. They were seeing what was going on based on Twitter and listened to the talks, yeah. and now they're you know they're pursuing. So I think I think it's a great medium, and I think it's important for scientists. I mean, the, the other thing about Twitter is is you know we talked about information for the lay public, but it's also a forum for collaboration. Yeah. I'll give you one example that's not related to pancreas cancer, but it's happening right now on Twitter, um, and I actually had a little bit of a hand to play in it because there was this article that just came out, and you probably have heard about this vaping related. Yeah. lung injury that's yeah, yeah. happening. Yeah. There are there have been several deaths 
in in Wisconsin and Illinois and other places around the country of of teenagers and young adults who have who who vaped and then they had really bad lung failure and died. Um, and so there was a paper that just got published, and like within minutes, I had tweeted it out, and I had tagged some of the the pathologists who study lung pathology, and said, "Guys, you got to get together and study this." Um, and they're trying to get all these patients groups and 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 other pathologists together. So they like it's interesting. So they retweeted it out, saying we would love to you know collaborate on Twitter and 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 see if there's a number we can come together that we can you know generate sort of better data on what's going on with these patients why are they dying and uh, and so it's interesting like some some um, uh, pulmonologist wrote back saying, I have a patient I'm scoping tomorrow. I'll talk to my pathologist to make sure they have samples, um, you know, some medical all examiner. All because of a tweet. The medical examiner wrote back saying, hey, I just a patient who just died and we can go back and see Dude, what happened there. Uh, and so they're putting together, I mean, it's fortunately still not common enough that, you know, these cases are everywhere, but, you know, you still need to pull together these cases to better understand what's happening. So Twitter has become an amazing medium for collaboration as well. And it's free. How many things in life are free? It's not many. It's free. And so that's the reason I, I, you know, there are lots of some people who keep their tweets protected. I I never protected my tweets. It's like it's meant for dissemination. So for example, today, um, uh, and I know this podcast is not current, but, uh, but, where after this, I'm going to actually put uh, my slides that I spoke today um, on a Google Drive, and I'll put it on, put Twitter, on Twitter. So anybody who wants to download it can do it. So it's it's wonderful medium it's for awesome. that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, following you for the last couple of years, I mean, I've always and and I was jokingly saying before, like, you know, I do tell the other investigators they got to step up their Twitter game. <laughs> I, I do that, um, but I think, like you said, it's education, it's knowledge, and. Yeah. I, you know, I think, as you said, you're reading this stuff. So if there's researchers listening to this, yes. wherever they may be, it's a wealth of knowledge. Absolutely. And this is, I think, you know, we talk about collaboration before. This is how we move the needle. And we've got to kind of think outside the box a little bit. So Absolutely. if we're going to use social media, in this case, Twitter or a podcast or, you know, Instagram, whatever it may be, to bring awareness and to maybe connect someone that didn't know something or maybe spur that idea then I'm all for it. Exactly. And let's all do it. Exactly. Last question. And then I'm going to ask you what your Twitter handle is because we want to share that. And I think the one last thing on your Twitter handle, I think it's great. There's a human side of it because I saw the other day, which I did not realize, and and I don't watch a lot of TV anymore just because of the the job and my kids. But uh, India launched their rocket yes. and they were trying to get to the moon. Is yes. that right? And you had tweeted that, like how proud you were. Yes. And I was like, what is this? And I actually, I think I was, I had some downtime. I clicked on it and I like, I saw there was like a Facebook live video yes. with the prime minister exactly. talking and it was just so fascinating exactly. to me. And I'm like, that's gotta be such a momentous accomplishment for the country. But yes. I was just like, so there's stuff like that. It's just not all science. There's no. some really no. human it, stuff. There and is, it's just, absolutely. You keep it real, as they say. Well, I mean, every once in a while, I'll retweet my daughter, who also has a Twitter account. <laughs> she must love that. <laughs> she She's happy, very happy with that. Um, and, and her Twitter account is all on her stuff. And yeah. again, you know, she, she has food allergies, so it's all about food allergies and stuff. So it's, again, a very academic slash educational Twitter account. But... But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, as I said, 95% is pancreatic cancer, right. and the 5% is human, human slash daughter slash world events. Yeah, <laughs> which is real. That's how you keep it real, though. I, you know, and I think you know, you go back to, and this is the last thing I'll say. Like people who have protected accounts or people who just show the good and not yeah. the real. You yeah. know, which I think there's a bigger problem with social yeah. media. Last question: Where are we in five years? What does this all look like? Well, first of all, that's I think, a loaded question. Well, no, I mean it's a it's a great question because I've seen the last five and the five before and the five before. So I think first of all, they probably need a bigger room. <laughs> well, the first change that you already saw this used to be every two years. No, it's as every of this year. year, it's every year and next year it'll be in Philly. Absolutely. So 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 I think the field is growing and and the people involved are growing. They're going to need a bigger room. Number one, number two, um, that curve, that that survival curve, that tail. That tail has to keep going up. You know, um, Jim Allison, who won the Nobel Prize, I think I talked about him earlier in the mm-hmm. podcast for, for immunotherapy, and, and he's sort of the father of immunotherapy in modern times. 
he has a slide where he shows the curve for melanoma. And it's like a tail. It goes sharp down and kind of, you know, kind of lags. And he, sa- he calls it raising the tail. That tail goes up with one immunotherapy. You add a second one, it goes up even mm-hmm. more. And then you add more stuff to it. So he calls it raising the tail. And it's basically showing how the survival of melanoma has gone from a deadly disease 20 years ago to now 80% of patients surviving. Remarkable. I mean, that Nobel Prize was so well-deserved. So that's what we want to do in the next five years, raise that damn tail of pancreatic cancer. We have to raise that tail. We are raising it. It's it's from the floor that tail has come up, up, but it has not come up enough. Yeah. And so I really hope in five years when we're showing some of those curves, those tails are much, much higher. Well, I think there's a lot of like-minded folks and a Absolutely. lot of things that you said here on the podcast just hit home. And there's a lot of groups you've worked with, Lust Garden, with PanCan, Stand Up to Cancer, and you guys are all doing amazing things. And uh, that's exciting for hopefully the patients and the families listening at home that are dealing with the disease because there's a lot happening. And that's something that I always say is, when you get knocked down, all these patients get knocked right. down, right. you got to get back up. Absolutely. It's not about staying on top. It's about getting back up. I mean, and, and this back. is why I, I love I love the mission of Project Purple, which you know uses something that we all know is a good thing, exercise, running, yeah. to help get people get back we gotta up. we got to get you to do a half marathon. <laughs> or maybe leave that to Eugene and Joe. Well, maybe. Eugene and Joe, they, they have told me that one of these days they're going to make me take that plunge. I, there was another guy, and now we're jumping to this, the, this last thing that I'll mention. So Eugene Coy ran the New York City Half yes. Marathon, uh, New York City Marathon. Right. I'm not going to cheat him there. New York City Marathon, marathon. last year. Joe Herman, also at uh, yes. MD Anderson, ran as well. Yes. And then when the picture was of them with their medals, I think it was another gentleman at MD Anderson said, well, now we need AB to run. <laughs> I think it was Colin or Colin. Colin, Colin, Colin Taniguchi. Yeah. And then I think I, quote, I, I tweeted back, no, both you guys need to run. Yes. And so Colin is running. Oh, he is? He is running, not the New York Half oh, Marathon. Okay. He's running something in, locally in Houston. It was on his Twitter feed. Um, and I guess at some point I'm going to be shamed into doing that. But anyway, I mean, I, again, coming back to the mission of what you guys do, I think it's it's wonderful and and how you bring you know sports and exercise into it. This is an area that not a lot of foundations are working on, but I think it's something that is very empowering, mm-hmm. very empowering. And I think I think there's a lot of of um, you know inspiration that you can get beyond here's the chemotherapy and here's the radiation therapy and that's all a lot to deal with and then you have the empowerment that comes from the running. Well, thank you. And thank you for what you do. If our audience wants to connect with you, AEB, where's the best place for them to find you? Twitter, email, Well, I'm website. on Twitter. Um, you know, my, my Twitter handle, well, you can look up my name or Twitter handle is AIIMS1742. It's all one word, AIIMS1742. Um, and my email is amitra at mdanderson.org. I am happy to answer questions. Um, you can find my email online um, and just feel free to reach out. Awesome. Anirban, thank you for the time. Appreciate you know, all you. you do. Safe travels. And that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Thank you, Dino. Thank you.